The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. Blessed are you, the poor. The realm of God is yours. Blessed are you who hunger today. You shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep today. You shall laugh. Blessed are the humble. They will inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful. They will find mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be ranked on children of God. You are the salt of the earth, and if salt becomes tasteless, how is its saltiness to be restored? It is good for nothing. You are the light of the world. When a lamp is lit, it is not put under a bushel, but on the lampstand, where it gives light to everyone in the house. Those hallowed words taken from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount Remind me that when William Ellery Channing, the spiritual founder of Unitarianism in America, preached the great sermon in Baltimore that began our movement, he too used a scriptural text. Prove all things, test them, and hold fast to that which is good. Today it may surprise you to hear the largest Unitarian congregation in our country is in Indian Territory, that is in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It's also perhaps the most racially inclusive congregation in our movement. I was once there on a Sunday when a previous minister, my good friend John Burton Wolfe, had been called back to the pulpit to preach, sort of the way I've been called back today. And John began with a story about my predecessor as UUA president, Bill Schultz, great leader in human rights. When Bill was leading the UUA in Boston, he chose to live north of the city in a place called Newburyport and take the commuter train. Gave him a chance to read. Well, one day, he, as he got on board, another fellow said to the conductor, now when does this train get to Salem? And the conductor replied, haven't you heard? This train doesn't stop in Salem anymore. Oh no, said the fellow. I'm due there at 9 a.m. My whole career depends on making this appointment. Well, said the conductor, uh, uh, we still do slow down as we go through that station. <laughs> and I probably shouldn't do this, but I can open all of the doors then. And if you jump out and run as fast as you can in the same direction the train is moving, maybe you won't fall and you should be okay. The man did exactly as he was told, and the train was very slow going through the station. And he soon found himself running alongside an open door of a car up ahead, where two people reached out and grabbed him and pulled him back on, <laughs> saying, you damn fool, don't you know this train doesn't stop in Salem anymore? Now you know why I'm here. It is actually 
to reinforce what your current ministers have been trying to say. The train doesn't stop in Salem anymore. It doesn't stop to roast witches or heretics, but rather to pull everyone on board. Don't you just hear it? People get ready. There's a train a-coming. Don't need no ticket. You just get on board. Now, as Laura mentioned, this fall I'm teaching on Zoom on Monday evenings, starting a week from tomorrow, about the uses and abuses of the Hebrew scriptures. And to prepare for it, I've been doing a lot of reading about people largely left out of the histories that most of us learned in school. I can recommend, for example, An Indigenous People's History of America by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, who lives right here in our city and who has spoken to us here. More recently, I've been taking up a history of the nomadic tribes of, the, of central Eurasia who helped to shape and boundary the so-called civilizations, that is, the city-based societies that were emerging from Mesopotamia, India, Greece, later Rome. All of which has given me a new perspective on the interaction between indigenous peoples and the explorers and traders coming from city-based societies or civilizations with their new trading goods and technologies and weapons and even diseases seen as signs of power and representing what must then be more powerful gods or ideas. It's how Hellenistic humanism spread under Alexander of Macedon. It's how Buddhism spread from India under Emperor Ashoka. And before long, and the both were long before the Roman Empire, Constantine co-opted the Jesus movement and used it in a creedal form to control not only the Mediterranean but also to convert the encroaching barbarians. Now what a great Christian Constantine was. Although claiming to have won imperial rule under the sign of the cross, he actually waited until he was dying to be baptized because he felt he might need his sins washed away, like the fact that he had most members of his family poisoned or strangled, except for his chosen successor, who, by the way, didn't agree with the creed that Papa had impressed, imposed on the church at Nicaea in 325. The losing party at that council, you might remember, was a fellow named Arius, who clearly felt that Jesus had come from on high, all right, to proclaim some uncomfortable truths to the comfortable and to bring some compassion to the poor and the oppressed. Not as part of a trinity that he never spoke about. And there was another early heretic, that is, one who chooses what to believe and what not to believe who was an early universalist, origin of Alexandria, who simply couldn't square the concept of an all-embracing God of love with any idea of an eternal hell. But 
I digress. When Universalist Thomas Starr King first came and spoke from this very pulpit in 1864, the genocide and displacement of indigenous peoples here in North America was already well advanced all across the continent and with precious little resistance. Some even said that it was all prescribed and predicted in the Bible. This was, in my humble opinion, perhaps the worst abuse and misuse of scripture in our entire cultural history. It was used to justify perpetuating patriarchy, misogyny, slavery, as though the God of the very dynamic histories recorded in the Hebrew Bible were somehow static. Read it, said Jesuit Jack Mills in his book, God, a Biography. You'll find God gets better, grows up. Perhaps so should we. Among the earliest white settlers on this continent, the prevailing idea was that Providence had decimated the native population in order to make room for them at places like Plymouth and Boston and Salem. In fact, of course, it was contact with early European fisher folk who brought diseases for whom the indigenous population had no immune resistance that had killed so many, leaving only a few like Massasoit of the Thanksgiving legend to teach the newly arrived pilgrims how to plant corn and squash and have a harvest. And then when the Pequod, the Narragansett, and others rose up against encroachments on their traditional hunting grounds, the Puritan ministers, all at least some of them, told their people that God, they were God's chosen and were licensed to kill and conquer, if not convert all of the so-called heathen. Often they cited texts from the book of Joshua in which the children of Israel coming out of Egypt were said to have conquered Canaan, killing all of the tribe of the Amalekites, leaving no one alive, and watching the walls of Jericho miraculously tumble down. Yet today, any good biblical scholar, archeologist, or historian will tell you that no bloody conquest of Canaan ever existed or took place. It's all a myth, developed because it was a better story than the boring truth that the 12 tribes of Israel had formed their confederation in a period when the empire of Egypt and the empire of Mesopotamia were both preoccupied elsewhere. Yet what has to be puzzling, certainly puzzling to me both as a minister and a citizen, is why delusional and mythological ideas, like making America great again, triumph over the clearer biblical teachings about welcoming the stranger. Do not kill, and do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Hence my Zoom course aimed at empowering us skeptics, seekers, and religious liberals with better answers to the many abuses of the Bible that persist in our culture. For example, 
The creation story Laura didn't tell, the one about Adam and Eve, isn't about sex and original sin. It's about an original discernment, first on her part, about the difference between good and evil. Hashtag me too. And the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, that's not about same-sex attraction and love. It's about rape and violations of the law of hospitality. Don't get me going too far on this, but let me simply say that when we in our culture today allow the abusers to claim the sole right to interpret the Bible or the Constitution or the flag or motherhood by turning our backs on those cultural icons, we both disempower ourselves and we empower the oppressor. We know a few things about motherhood. As your current ministers can readily attest, when a woman is ready and willing to be able to nurture a child, we even believe in the USA, as flawed as our country may be. Thomas Starr King, during the Civil War, did all he could to hold it together and the flag for which it stood. Not to be made great again as selfish or abusive, but to be made good again, caring for our own poor and disabled, for descendants of those who were once enslaved and sent to reservations, and opening our doors as best we can to the millions now fleeing failing democracies and growing climate change. We believe in interfaith cooperation for the common good, because all great faith traditions have their core of wisdom that we can embrace, which is why Reverend Vanessa now heads the San Francisco Interfaith Council, whose efforts to build more affordable housing for our city's essential workers I so strongly support. I guess it was about 30 years ago this fall when I first went to Hawaii. I was the newly elected president of our denomination and I was to preach at the Sunday afternoon installation of our new minister at the UU Church in Honolulu and visit smaller UU groups on the Big Island and on Maui and then to spend a few days at a Buddhist retreat center. The installation was to include many of Oahu's interfaith leaders, so there was no service on Sunday morning at the UU's, and I chose to worship at the old First Congregational Church in Honolulu. They nod, they know it. Started by missionaries who'd come out with whalers from New England. I must say I came to be a bit of a skeptic. I stayed to pray. Because what I saw that morning was remarkable. It was a service centered on the naming, blessing, and dedication of almost a dozen young children, the diversity of whose ethnicity was made clear in their remarkable names. Makani Jose Hagiwara Sanchez Jones. Maria Lalelani Washington Chong. I'm making these up, but I remember being so taken by the way that congregation, in its embracing love, was making the kind of world that we yearn for. 
By the way, I later spoke with the woman who was the director of religious education at the UU church when his grandparents took young Barack Obama there to Sunday school. What was he like, I asked. Well behaved, she replied. When Star King first arrived in San Francisco, his first sermon was from Matthew 8:31. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. His first address outside the church was to a July 4th picnic sponsored by the Episcopal Sunday School Society for all the city's children and their families. Sadly, the bishop promptly condemned the society for having invited a heretic to speak. And then on the 1st of August, after he came back from his visit to Yosemite Valley, which he helped to save, he spoke to all of San Francisco's African-Americans on what was then celebrated as Emancipation Day. That is, the anniversary of Britain ending slavery in its Caribbean colonies. He said that our flag should stand for more than just a corrupt bargain among the states. It should stand for that higher law lifted up in scripture, which can only be fulfilled when the church itself includes Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, from every place of every identity, every faith or doubt. All of that, my friends, remains implicit in the mission of this great congregation from its founding. This here train may not stop in Salem anymore because we have no time for witch hunts or oppressive misuses of the scripture. But we are still guided in no small part by words like what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. And the kingdom of God is within you, although I would prefer the translation, among you. And the kingdom of God might be translated as Dr. King did, as beloved community among all earth's children a realm that surely is present whenever we begin to treat one another as sisters and brothers, all offspring of one great mystery, named or unnamed, and understood as Star King and the Transcendentalists did as transcending any particular scripture or culture for all of Earth's many varied peoples. So let those who have ears to hear, hear. Those who have eyes to see, see. The holy is in our midst, even in the most broken among us. The eternal thou dwells wherever and whenever I and thou truly connect as co-creators of a better future for all. And the eternal word echoes through our singing and our speech and even in our silent prayers. 
so may it be forever. Amen.